Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the crux of the story. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of public relations at Boston University in the College of Communication. And I'm here with my co-host, Mike Fernandez, who's the Chief Communications Officer at Enbridge. Hello, Mike. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing well. Number 97, Mike. We're really, we're moving fast towards 100. Yeah. And uh, I'm having a big cake made, everything. It's All right. It's going to be in the shape of a microphone. It's going to be a big celebration <laughs> here at BU. I hope you can make it. So uh, I want to tell a little backstory about today's topic and guest. A few years ago, Oscar Suris, Mike, who you know well, yep. uh, Oscar is a really well-respected PR practitioner, was CCO at Wells Fargo, and he's now with Edelman, uh, I believe. And he introduced me to the concept of societal acumen, or the necessity that communicators have a deep and broad understanding of society, including the existential challenges that many people face in their lives, whether these challenges are natural, man-made, or even political. Oscar's point, and he made it when he was talking to my class at Boston University, was that communicators, more than most executives, need to be deep in this sort of environmental knowledge uh, in which their enterprises operate, particularly to help determine how enterprises deliver value to society. And for me, this was something of an awakening, it made me realize I had sort of narrow casted myself. I was reading the same things day after day over and over about what was going on in the world. And so as a result, getting a very limited perspective. And so I, I wanted to, to find some new sources of news about what was going on in the world. Uh, particularly in the area of sort of this intersection of communication, business, and society. And as part of that awakening, I guess, uh, I recently discovered a great source of information, The New Humanitarian. It's an independent nonprofit newsroom that provides on-the-ground coverage of humanitarian crises around the world. And we're really fortunate today to have with us the newsroom's executive editor, Josephine Schmidt, to discuss its coverage of humanitarian crises around the world. Let me introduce Josephine and then we'll get into the discussion. She started her career in post-communist Eastern Europe where she supported the establishment of some of the region's first post-Soviet journalism projects and launched and ran a nonprofit newsroom covering transition across the region. She brings decades of international newsroom newsroom leadership and media strategy experience from her time in three continents to our discussion today. Spent almost two decades at the New York Times in a variety of editorial roles across newsrooms in New York, Paris, and Hong Kong, and spent time with one foot on the business side and one on the editorial side, launching multi-platform revenue-producing editorial projects for the Times and leading media companies. Welcome to The Crux, Josephine. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. 
Thank you so much, Gary and Mike. And I'm so glad the new humanitarian could be part of your reawakening. Well, yes, I am. I am as well. So um, I really, I really do enjoy it. And and um, so let's let's talk about it. So you've had a number of uh, exceptional, I would say, amount of journalistic experiences across the globe in different capacities, as I just described. It started in Eastern Europe. Um, you supported the development of journalism projects in post-Soviet nations. Tell us about that experience. What were you working on uh, specifically, and what were some of the things you learned, Josephine? Um, yes, my misspent youth in Eastern Europe, which um, in, re in retrospect um, was quite well spent for where I have ended up at the New Humanitarian. Um, you know, it was such a privilege um, to really have a front seat to um, a society in transition, in transition in so many ways, economic, social, political. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I or my colleagues at the time really, really understood what a privilege that that was and how it would shape us to, to this day, how it would impact our careers. I think in, in retrospect, what I really learned so much and um, being in Eastern Europe, working in the former Soviet bloc was really the power of words to change the world, the power of words to change lives. I mean, you've got to remember I was based in Prague. It was home to the Velvet Revolution, a place where a, a country that was eventually led by a poet and a playwright. Um, yes, it's, it's easy to say, uh, yes, it was a Velvet Revolution. There was no violence, no harm. It was all words. We all know that um, what happened came about because of decades, years and years of, um, of hard work and unhappiness and um, uh, rights that were curbed. But words played a big part in that. Um, and um, it just just really hammered home just the importance of, of, of words and, and hammered home the power of telling one's story and knowing that it is heard. You know, we had the privilege of working with people who'd been political prisoners, dissident artists, people who'd been blacklisted from going to school because of what their parents supposedly did. Um, and, and they had no one for years to tell their story to or to listen to them. So as a journalist, I think one of the top skills I learned was, was really to listen. Um, and secondly, I think what I learned was that so much of the world and what a journalist reports on is gray. There's rarely black and white, although we love, we love that image, right? We, we tell you the news, we tell you what happened. Yes, for breaking news that can often, that hopefully that is the case. There are the facts, this is what happened. But most of the time it's, it's gray, which is why it's all the more important to listen and to listen to people from all vantage points of a situation to take a, a 360 degree approach to reporting. That's fascinating. I, I, I love that description and almost the tenuousness that you're dealing with in terms of civilization and life. Um, now, the new humanitarian which you've been a part of now since 2018, um, got its start, I know, uh, from the United Nations, going back to the mid-1990s. Um, IRIN News uh, was founded shortly uh, on, on the heels of the Rwandan genocide. Uh, 
And in 2015, the new humanitarian became an independent news agency focused on the kinds of crises that we've just been talking about, um, but with a focus on increasing awareness of, of these crises, as, as well as holding um, aid organizations and governments accountable for their work. Uh, Josephine, as you look at it and, and, and from the vise of the rich early career that you had and what you see at the New Humanitarian today, what's different about the journalistic approach at the New Humanitarian? And why is this approach important for others and for companies and, and communicators to consider? Sure. Um, at the New Humanitarian, we're, we're different for a few reasons. I'll, I'll share three very briefly. What makes us different lies in our roots, in the reason why we were founded back in the mid-90s after the Rwanda genocide. And just as an aside, yes, we were founded as Erin News, and as we all know, all good um, UN organizations and projects <laughs> need an acronym. So that's what that was. <laughs> yeah, catchy name. Uh, yes. It's also why we rebranded in 2019 as the New Humanitarian. But why are we different? So we were founded on the, the belief, really, that um, had there been more fact-based, on-the-ground, independent, and inclusive reporting about the situation in the country, the atrocities that took place, they may not have been avoided, but perhaps they would have been reduced. Perhaps the violence would have subsided more quickly. In, in that atrocity, as in so many others, as in so many conflicts and health emergencies, such as the COVID pandemic, to this day, faulty information, and I mean information that's biased, factually inaccurate, plays a huge role. Back then, radio was a primary platform for spreading information. Today, it's largely social media. But again, it goes back to what I said earlier about the power of words to change lives and change the world and not always for the good. So uh, we were, were founded on the, the belief that fact-based journalism, independent journalism could really change things. And we, we stick to that belief to this day. Just as a, another quick aside, it might find odd, sound odd to say flat that fact-based inclusive reporting distinguishes us because what, what distinguishes journalism as a genre is that it is fact-based. Yet, as we've all seen, facts can be hand-picked, they can be manipulated to suit a specific agenda, or they can be ignored completely or made up and branded as facts. So when we report, when we talk about fact-based journalism, we're relying on first-hand sources, mm -hmm. we're relying on data, we're looking at the context around a situation, I mean, this is all good old-fashioned journalism, right? Mm -hmm. But much, so much of it has fallen by the wayside as media outlets and also the way people consume media has changed. Is that what you mean by that on your website you reference that the, the journalistic model is broken? Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, in, in part, that's what we mean. Um, more broadly, when we talk about the journalistic model being broken, um, we're talking about a severe power imbalance. I mean, to be specific, what we see as broken, really the way journalism is practiced and paid for. Of course, we don't believe 
journalism as an, an entity is broken. As a journalist, you've got to believe in the power of your work, mm -hmm. again, in the ability of, of your words and facts to help bring about change. Now, you've worked on both the business and the, and, and the journalistic side or the editorial side of, of a lot of different news organizations. And we've kind of seen over the last several decades uh, a lot of change in terms of even how uh, the journalistic model is funded, that we see models where foundations have been established. Uh, we've seen billionaires like Jeff Bezos uh, get into the media business as he bought the Washington Post. And we, we've even seen broad-based subscriber platforms such as Substack. How is the new humanitarian funded? So we are, I'm, I might say we're a, a typical nonprofit media organization, and there are so many that have um, been established over the past 10 years or so, uh, or so um, in part, I suspect, because um, others feel that the mainstream media model is also broken. So we're, we're largely grant-funded uh, from philanthropies such as the Gates Foundation, Hilton, the McGovern Foundation, uh, the IKEA Foundation. We're funded also by government, and they fund us largely through their foreign aid arms, uh, places like Canada, Denmark, Germany, a few individuals, um, and a bit from our very early stage forays into a membership program and a few other attempts at finding um, sustainable revenue streams. We're experimenting with a, a newsletter right now. I, I would like to add that for our donors, it's both the journalism and the focus on humanitarian issues that appeal to them. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of government in particular, they usually see us as contributing to improving the humanitarian system, to making it more accountable and effective by providing information that will inform decision makers. Uh, because I have worked on both the business and editorial <laughs> sides, I will be very clear that um, TNH, we retain full authority over our editorial content and to protect our journalistic yep. credibility. And there's a very strong wall between our fundraising side and our editorial side. Uh, we've also developed a set of principles for accepting financial contributions that, that emphasize our editorial independence. And those principles are transparent on your website. People can find them, yes. which is really um, refreshing. And I'm, as a former journalist, I'm, I'm glad you made the distinction between the institution of journalism and how it's practiced and paid for today uh, in some cases. I think that's really important to emphasize particularly to the people out there who are journalists today or thinking about becoming journalists, it really is an incredibly important part of our society, which is where we started our conversation today. So let's get specific uh, about the work of the new humanitarian. Uh, our listeners will remember the 7.8 magnitude earthquake earlier this month in Turkey that caused a regional crisis for both Turkey and Syria. And latest I saw was over 40,000 dead and just incredible suffering, buildings destroyed, people left homeless. Uh, the UN has called for aid uh, of 1.4 billion for the two countries and uh, aid has been pouring in for to help people, although complicated obviously by the politics and the governance of that region of the world. So maybe the best way to talk about the new humanitarian is to talk about how you're covering this tragedy. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. 
On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. Um, well, we are covering it as we do much of, most of our coverage, largely through on-the-ground local journalists, um, many of whom have themselves been impacted by the quake or whose family and friends have been impacted. So that adds a whole other layer of, of issues to deal with. Just to go back for a second to the issue of um, how the journalism model is broken, one way we see that as see it as broken and we see the power imbalance is that so often the people who are doing the real work, who have the insight into the real stories are our local journalists, yet mm-hmm. they are very rarely credited uh, with bylines or even with a, an attribution in most mainstream media and others. So we go out of our way to work with local journalists. They know their communities best. They can best identify the stories that need to be told, not the stories that parachute journalists, people who have come in for a week or a day, um, think need to be told. We are lucky uh, in that we've long been working in the region where the earthquake took place because it's a region that's long been dealing with overlapping humanitarian crises, and the earthquake just adds to those. There's the decade-plus civil war in Syria, which has been uprooting lives, often multiple times, the same family moving over and over again. Many of them, the families living in northern Syria when the quake hit, often in camps, often in precarious situations, were already struggling with how do you keep warm in the winter? How do you find health care for your kids? The quake adds another disruption. Uh, their, Their communities have also been dealing with a cholera outbreak. In Turkey, there were a number of refugee com- communities. Turkey is a host nation to um, refugees from Syria and elsewhere. Many of those communities were located in the area of the quake. So we have been in that area reporting um, on, on these crises and have journalists who we can tap. Um, in Syria specifically, uh, there are, are access difficulties for some of the reasons you referred to, Gary, that there, there's ongoing conflict, there are political tensions, very difficult to get visas. Uh, we're working with local journalists to do a series of audio and video blogs chronicling the situation now into the next month. We're also covering the story in terms of the impact this new and outside crisis is and will have on other crises from Ukraine, as well as ongoing crises like Yemen, Myanmar, et cetera. We're asking questions like, where will the funding come from? Where will it be cut? How will donors respond? How will aid organizations find staff? Let me ask you, uh, Josephine, to go back to your example of the the beginnings of the new humanitarian. You talked about the Rwandan genocide and the power of words, and maybe you couldn't have, have avoided some of those killings, but maybe you could have lessened it. How do you think about that in your approach to this situation in Turkey and Syria? What What is your goal? Is it to um, awaken people to the need for aid? I was going to ask you about some of this aid fatigue we see with people with all of mm-hmm. the things going on. But really, what is the goal of the fact-based 
you know, primary source reporting that you're doing in Turkey and Syria? Yeah, so our goal with, with all of our rep reporting, no matter where we're reporting from, is to help improve the lives of people living in the midst of crises. And our, our goal is to provide information that policymakers, donors, others who could be involved in the humanitarian response can use to improve that response. Our goal is, is also awareness. It's also broader public awareness. Yes, that, that can help with funding, but you, you, sh you shine a light on need, and oftentimes there are ways found to meet that, that need. Um, as a small nonprofit newsroom, we, we simply can't go head-to-head head head with the big mainstream media. So that is why we're not rushing to send journalists in to places where, um, where a disaster like this has happened. There are already people there to cover that. Likely, they're not going to be there for the long term. And that's when we come in because we stay on these crises for the long term and we continue to shine the light and continue to amplify the voices of the people living at the heart of those crises. Excellent. Thank you. Now, Josephine, before we got started with the program, you and I were talking a little bit about my experience with um, international aid organizations when I was at Cargill working with USAID, World Food Program, and the like. And many of our listeners also are with companies that have an interest in what's happening with these aid organizations. Sometimes uh, the new humanitarian is, is, is critical uh, of these agencies. And in fact, you know, part of, uh, I, I think, the mission is, is to highlight, you know, the failures of the aid industry and 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 to call out uh, where there's issues and where there are problems. How are these aid industries or these aid agencies and organizations really doing and where where are their failures? Well, failing is a strong word as you guys certainly know coming from the communications world. Um though at times it's apt. I I suppose challenges is more politically correct. But we don't want to look past the fact that at times there are failures in aid response, and those failures impact real-life humans, the people who need to watch their kids go without enough to eat because rations have been cut, because funding has been cut, and there are no jobs. People who need to go to extraordinary lengths to educate their kids because access to schools is impossible. People who watch a family member die because they've walked miles on foot to reach a clinic that doesn't have the equipment to help them. The, the narrative of aid, it's the it's narrative of saviorism. It's the narrative of doing good. Mm -hmm. It's the narrative that the aid organizations have long controlled, largely because there's not a dedicated watchdog over the industry, really, except the industry itself. And we all know how that works out in any industry. So we see ourselves not as setting out to find the failures in the industry. We see ourselves as setting out to report on what's working and what isn't from the perspective of the communities being served. I mean, aid is, after all, a service industry, really. And then we also make a point of reporting on ways to move forward, how to begin to make whatever might have gone wrong right. And when we're looking at what's going well and what isn't, we acknowledge that we're reporting on an industry that's confronted with an ever-growing horizon of lack of. You know, yeah. the relief reaches less than half the people who are targeted, even though humanitarian funding nearly doubled over the last decade. Mm. That in itself is a failure. So perhaps it's not a failure solely of the humanitarian system, but of all of us who touch 
or could touch that system in some way. Just to be a little more specific, when we look at what works and what doesn't, we're looking at things like issues around funding and funding cuts. We're looking at things that like issues around accountability. I think that's seen most clearly in our reporting on sex abuse in humanitarian settings. We look at issues around power and voice, mm -hmm. who's being heard, who's making the decisions. We've begun bringing together people who live in communities beset by crises with those whose job it is to respond to them. They're user feedback sessions in a way, and they often point up a failure to listen, a failure to be heard. Yeah, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and, and I'm curious as to whether or not it's still a, a concern amongst various aid organizations. Uh, when I was more engaged in the topic, it was very clear that there were that there was the immediate disaster response and then there were more chronic situations that had longer tails and 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 and, and tougher issues and increasingly while people were geared up for the immediate crisis which meant sending in goods uh you know in medicines that there was a, a really active conversation or there's been active conversation through the years about whether we should instead be delivering money closer to the source of some of these chronic issues so that a marketplace could develop and certain other things could develop that would be more helpful to those communities in the long run. Is that still an issue? Is that still a discussion point? Yeah, uh, uh, very much so. And within the humanitarian sector, there is a lot of focus on a mindset, which is referred to as the nexus, which is talking about how can the humanitarian sector, the development sector, the peacekeeping sectors work together? How can they overlap? to um, take a, a longer term approach mm -hmm. to, to humanitarian crises. So, you know, these are three with traditionally very siloed sectors, but as humanitarian crises um, expand and become chronic, it's very clear that humanitarian organizations are often called on to do development type work. And so there is much more of a of a, of a push for all of these, for these three sectors to work together and really look at the root of the, of the crisis of the problem and, uh, and offer the people who are living in the midst of these crises a, a, a longer term way out of, of what they are being faced with. The new humanitarian in many ways kind of sears our consciousness and challenges all of us to think about our responsibilities to humanity. How can companies best balance public interests, company interests, stakeholder interests when understanding and addressing humanitarian responsibilities in the countries in which they operate and elsewhere? I'm a journalist, so I, I, it's not for me to, to, to give advice to companies about how they should uh, should or should not operate in, uh, in nations that are facing humanitarian crises. What I can do is speak a little bit about what we have seen some private initiatives doing in, um, in, in countries that need to respond to humanitarian crises. I will add that, you know, the aid sector hasn't changed a whole lot in 25 years, although the world has, and the nature of humanitarian crises has grown. I mean, it's predominantly a Western-dominated in its orientation, charity-driven in its business model, and technocratic in its approach. 
So that approach may no longer be the right solution. So there's a big opening here for new ideas, new expertise, disruption, maybe, maybe not such an appetite for disruption, but perhaps a need. So I think, you know, what, what we try to do at the New Humanitarian in our reporting and, and really in our approach when we look at, at to what's broken in the system is to ask the what if questions a bit more. So we've launched a series on humanitarian disruptors. We call them DIY humanitarians. They're often small organizations that saw a need and used their expertise to meet it. In a similar vein, we did a podcast last year titled Fixing Aid. It looked at private initiatives to tackle challenges in aid delivery. One um, was, for instance, IBM uh, worked with the Danish Refugee Council to create an online modeling tool to predict how many people would be displaced in the next few years and to which countries. And the question was really, what if humanitarians receive more precise predictions on who will be displaced, where and when, and how might that change the assistance be provided? And, and could even could there be preemptive action taken to reduce that displacement? That tool, uh, you know, there are also downsides, of course. Could, could those forecasts be used to close borders? That type of thing. But I think what's um, interesting about it is that it really took a long-term approach, a long-term horizon to um, how can we, how can private organizations, individuals help change a situation that, that they're working, if not in, alongside? Well, that's, that's exactly the kind of information I think our colleagues in the public relations field, communications, are looking for. They are looking for disruptive ideas rather than the knee-jerk reactions, as Mike was describing, when something like Turkey and Syria occurs, you write a check and, and that's it. They are really looking for ideas that have long-term benefits and that empower local people to, to rise to the challenges of what they're seeing in their own communities. So I, I want to come back to me, because this podcast really ultimately is always about me, Josephine. And, and um, what got my attention, I'm teaching crisis communication this semester, and I saw your list of the 10 uh, humanitarian crises that uh, you feel need coverage or being undercovered and need attention globally. Uh, that was put out, I think, in January, and it, it caught my attention and, and therefore got, my, got me connected to the new humanitarian. Can you tell us a little bit about those 10 crises and why you picked them? I think climate change in the Horn of Africa, for example, uh, was one of them. Ongoing conflict, of course, in Israel, Palestine, the situation in Myanmar. How did you pick them and, and why? Yeah, it is. Well, that list is a real mixed bag and it's always a, a difficult and sometimes fraught process. We don't want to be in the business of categorizing woe and pain mm -hmm. and suffering right. and saying these are the top 10. What, what we are looking for really are we are trying to choose crises or situations where we feel there's some sort, there will be, maybe, will likely be some sort of change or movement in the coming year, for better or for worse, uh, because so many of the crises we cover are, have, have become chronic. And 
in doing that, what we are, what our hope, our intent is that we can offer a way forward, not that these crises, not that there can be a solution to these crises, but right. that maybe there could be one, one step forward or so. Well, I think it, I think it helps. Like I say, the people who do what we do in big private, you know, uh, or publicly held companies, they, they need a new source of information. Right. And, and they're, they're looking, um, they're running foundations, many of them looking where they can, their dollars or their capabilities can be best applied, deliver the highest value. So raising awareness to some of these chronic crises, as you, as you say, I think is a good thing. Most of them, Josephine, have global responsibility. They're multinationals. Many of them are headquartered in the U.S. And I wonder work that your newsroom does is outside the United States. Do you have any plans or have you thought about taking a look at some of these situations in the United States as well? Yes, um, we have, um, as, as the humanitarian sector has. As I mentioned earlier, the sector really has not changed a whole lot in 25 mm. years. It's very right. Western-oriented, it's, and it's long been, as I said, a, um, the narrative has been one of saviorism where we, the West, go in to help save other countries. I think the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 really uh, catalyzed discussions about, well, certainly about power and power imbalances within our own newsroom. That's when we really started asking what if questions around uh, around the, the model of journalism we practice and what's broken, how can we fix it? How can we better, how can we write this power imbalance and who reports the story, who owns the story, who tells the story. I think it also um, uh, pushed many aid organizations to look at um, who they are serving. And I think hand in hand with the Black Lives Matter movement, we were in the midst of a global pandemic, which really grew right. up how vulnerable all of us, any everywhere are. So in the U.S., we we do coverage. Our, our main coverage is um, migration coverage along the U.S. southern border. Mm-hmm. There are humanitarian crises, various, going on there. But, you know, if you look at the U.S., there's no reason to say that one couldn't look at poverty as a crisis or hunger mm-hmm. as a crisis or even um, in some areas, maternal mortality statistics and that type of thing. I think, uh, you know, our approach in covering humanitarian crises has long been that what, what we cover as a crisis is an emergency. Um, and we have typically covered crises in countries that will need to ask for aid, need to ask for help in, in meeting the needs. And that higher income countries like the U.S. should, may, could um, uh, attend to their own crises, although increasingly that's that's not not the case. Right. Josephine, the, the new humanitarians journalism acts as kind of a catalyst for policy change in a humanitarian aid sector. Can you share some examples of how your organization's coverage has impacted policy or raised awareness to drive lasting change? Yeah. So for us, in impact is our currency as a, as a nonprofit newsroom. It's what allows us to continue our work. Um, just as clicks are the currency of most uh, commercial media organizations these days, ads are sold against audience and revenue depends on audience numbers. Impact is our 
currency. I'll offer two, two different examples of impact. One is toward large-scale organizational change, and one toward change on a much smaller scale, though I, I think equally important, and, and I'm especially proud of it. So one really strong example related to is related to um, our coverage of sex abuse and exploitation in the humanitarian sector. Uh, it's an example of both impacting policy and raising awareness. So uh, every year, the UN uh, puts out a state of the humanitarian system report. And in the most recent one, there was a discussion of how high-profile cases of sexual exploitation and abuse had uh, prompted greater scrutiny and reform within the humanitarian system. According to that report, there were multiple high-level initiatives created, including a new Office of the Victims' Rights Advocate, the UN, and recent reviews, guidance, and investments in staffing um, to suggest that um, preventing sexual abuse and exploitation is a priority in the system. We've contributed to this change with our high-impact investigations uh, in covering, uncovering uh, sexual abuse in the humanitarian sector. Um, perhaps best known, we did two investigations in 2020 and 2021 on work for sex schemes by aid workers during the Ebola crisis in Democratic Republic of Congo. These were things where poor, poor women, um, the, the, um, the Ebola response took place in parts of Congo that were especially impoverished, saw an, an opportunity to work and earn some money. And in some cases, those who had the power to grant jobs saw the opportunity to request that sex or demand that sex be exchanged in order for jobs to be given. So after our investigations, um, in which we spoke with 50, more than 50 for one story, another 25 for another, very, very brave women who told their stories and came forward. Aid organizations initiated internal investigations. The UK's International Development Committee called on the government to crack down on UK-funded organizations accused of sexual abuse. Aid groups started recruiting more people tasked with preventing such abuse. Our investigation triggered uh, an, uh, an independent commission to investigate the claims. Uh, the Director General of the World Health Organization, um, most of those men um, who were accused worked for World Health Organization. Mm. Uh, made a, he, he made a public apology and vowed to work towards transforming the organization's culture. We've, we continue this vein of reporting. In 2022, we did an investigation um, into a UN-run camp in South Sudan. It was an open secret situation. Um, of sexual favors or sex being requested for not so much work, but for additional goods and services. Mm -hmm. From that, the UN Secretary General requested an urgent report to detail the actions being taken to address this. Um, and the, um, the UN also launched an investigation into the allegations. So, um, what, what you don't hear mentioned here in all of this is, is the issue of justice. I mean, your communications professionals, you know, that handling, handling crisis is your business. So that accusations of sexual abuse against your staff, it's a crisis. Uh, when these right. reports come out, they're going to swiftly be vowed to investigate, vowed to change, et cetera. Um, 
there's much less said about how do we bring justice to the women who are at the heart of the story. So we we stay on these stories for the long term. Um, we will be publishing in the uh, shortly, in fact, um, a look at the women who were who made claims in our 2020 and 2021 investigations to see what what if any support they they found. And we will continue to do that with all of our, our coverage. Oh, I just wanted to give you one, one second um, example, and I'll make it really brief. Um, and it's completely different. It talks about change on a community level. So in August, we did a piece on indigenous communities in Argentina. And these communities have long felt disregarded by the central government, discriminated against by Argentina at times of European descent, systematically abused. Um, Argentina's, we don't do a lot of coverage out of Argentina. It's considered an upper middle income country by okay. the World Bank, right. the host country for a number of migrants, asylum seekers uh, from neighboring countries. But women uh, in indigenous communities, they've been confronted by a rise in gendered violence. So in our report, we reported on how a group of women um, from an indigenous community signed a letter to their to local officials saying they'd become pregnant as a result of abuse and demanding that non-indigenous men who fathered their children recognize paternity. Um, they also, working with regional politicians, presented a bill to make equality, inclusion, and anti-discrimination training compulsory for um, for uh, public officials working in the province. And that was approved by regional deputies and it's, it's uh, then under debate for the regional Senate. Um, so uh, after we published this article, we received a letter and uh, there were women in neighboring provinces who read our article on Google Translate. They translated into wow. Spanish and they made a similar request to their regional officials. Um, and they thanked us for focusing on the action and a small step forward that other women had taken. And it, they said it made them feel less like victims. It left them feeling hopeful, uh, which is something they had not felt in a long time. So to me, that, that sort of impact is just as important as the perhaps more public impact of, of influencing the way uh, the UN and INGOs um, prevent sexual abuse in their response. That's terrific. You know, and I love this idea that impact is your currency. Um, and and at, at the start, we talked about of this discussion, the power of words. And so, it, you know, the two things go together. Um, so importantly, in education, particularly, where, where we talk about words, and it may seem trivial, sometimes these days, you know, I was an English literature major, right? Uh, but the ability to use words to have impact is more important probably than ever. And I look at your organization, similar to ProPublica in the United States, another, you know, foundation mm -hmm. sort of not-for-profit. And they, same thing, they, they stick with stories and they report out on the changes um, that their work... Um, catalyzes. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of similarity there. Well, this has been fantastic, Josephine, really terrific. The website uh, for the new humanitarian is thenewhumanitarian.org. I'll say that again, thenewhumanitarian.org. And you also have, Josephine, a, a terrific podcast, the organization. I think it's called... Um, 
Let me find it here. It's called oh. Rethinking Humanitarianism. Yes, yes. yes we, we do. Um, and uh, it is um, hosted by our fabulous CEO, Heba Ali. Um, and absolutely worth tuning into. We have another um, podcast, more of a pop-up podcast I mentioned earlier called Fixing Aid. We yep. have a YouTube channel, plenty of videos, so you can read, watch, listen to The New Humanitarian. And again, it's thenewhumanitarian.org. You can sign up to receive our newsletters weekly or daily just to get a sense of, of what we're up to. Terrific. Josephine, thank you for being on The Crux of the Story. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for reading, listening, um, watching The New Humanitarian. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.